Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. This is Megan McKimmy. And I'm Rachel Telford. This week in grain farming news, the Progressive Conservatives have formed the new government in Ontario, and that's going to take effect as of June 29th. Um, Grain Farmers of Ontario is offering congratulations to new Premier Doug Ford and all of his members of the Progressive Conservative Party who are going to be representing voters uh, as the new government. Um, We do have some reminders for Premier Ford, though, and the new government, just to make sure that they keep in line with uh, some of the promises that they've made over the election campaign, and as well, some of the things that we would like to see as Grain Farmers of Ontario get moved forward within the legislature. Yeah, and so we chatted a little bit about uh, who was going to win this election in our last podcast. Um, And as we said that we're looking at uh, Premier Ford uh, is now elected in. And so we had asked for the removal of cap and trade, um, a business environment that wouldn't burden, and uh, an increase of 50 million to the RMP cap. Um, So those are some of our election asks in uh, congratulating uh, Doug Ford into coming into leadership. We've also asked the new government rescind the current neonicotinoid seed regulations, um, just because we know that that is, is still creating a lot of paperwork for our farmer members. And as uh, the years go on, they are increasing the regulations as mm-hmm. was was deemed to be phased in over time. So uh, we are asking them to take a second look at those regulations as well. Um, this election did see sweeping change made. Only 38 members of provincial parliament were re-elected so there's a lot of new bodies in the seats there in in um, toronto um a lot of the people that are returning are from rural ridings um because obviously the pcs did have strong support in the last election from Mm -hmm. rural areas and that continued in this election um so the new representatives are in those suburban areas on the outskirts of toronto and other urban centers and they might not be as familiar with agriculture as some of the uh, other MPPs are. So we'll have to do a little bit of work educating them about agriculture and, and why it's important to the economic growth of the province. Yeah, and I think uh, what's been a little bit interesting, there's been um, some speculation on who's going to step into that role of agriculture minister. Um, I We know that uh, Premier Doug Ford and his... Well, he was running and his platform had mentioned that it would likely be someone from rural Ontario. Um, So there's been a little bit of speculation on who that that person might be. Um, We've heard that it could be Lisa Thompson, and she's a Huron-Bruce MPP. Uh, Toby Barrett from Halliband, Norfolk. Uh, Ernie Hardiman from Oxford. And Monty McNaughton that represents Lambton, Kent, Middlesex. Are some of those names that... Um, people are tossing around as possibilities. I've met Toby Baird a couple of times. He's come out <clears> to <throat> the uh, District 6 um, district meeting in January um, a couple of times. Uh, he's actively engaged within the agriculture community in that area. And Lisa Thompson, interestingly, we send out a newsletter quarterly to the MPPs and MPs uh, from Grain Farmers of Ontario. And Lisa Thompson is the only person who has ever sent us a letter back. No. Keep in mind, it is a form letter, but she has acknowledged receipt of that newsletter. So obviously, that means somebody in her office is reading it. But yeah. uh, her name has stuck out to me just because uh, she is the one that has been responsive to our newsletter. Yeah, I've seen, a, like, um, if you follow the news and, and I guess the MPPs that are out there talking about agriculture, you do see Lisa uh, Thompson's name come up a lot. And she's she's definitely a voice for that. So, And Ernie Hardiman does have experience uh, in government uh, and in the agriculture critic role mm-hmm. and as well um, within the broader agriculture. So uh, there's some definitely some good choices, some good options for Doug Ford in terms of who he wants to select to be his ag minister. We're going to have to wait and see for, for that announcement um, and for the rest of his cabinet as well. It'll be interesting to see uh, one of the advantages of having a PC government that uh, people were talking about during the election campaign was the wealth of people that are available to fill those roles and that uh, there should be a lot of good people that uh, Ford has to choose from. So in other political news, um, in the last few weeks, Minister McCauley um, came out in the Senate, and then he talked about it a little bit later again in the House of Commons, and he made a comment about how farmers across uh, the province and across Canada would support a tax on carbon. And um, there's been a little bit of news about um, other farmers on Twitter and coming forward saying that um, most farmers would not actually support a tax on carbon because of the economic impact. Um, 
And from a grain farming perspective, uh, we think that the economic impact for the uh, entire industry would be at least $26 million when fully implemented, and that would just continue to go up. So for those reasons, Grain Farmers of Ontario uh, do not support a carbon tax. And on the tax front at the federal level as well, uh, the Budget Implementation Act is making its way through the House of Commons. And the Coalition for Small Business Tax Fairness is urging Finance Minister Bill Morneau and the Department of Finance to amend the new rules related to passive investment income that was announced in federal budget 2018. Now, passive investment income... It's a little bit confusing to understand, um, but rental income on farmland is considered passive income. Um, And once passive income surpasses the $50,000 threshold, the small business deduction will be reduced. And at $150,000, it will be gone completely. So if you have multiple sources of passive income, whether that's farmland rental or or other sources, um, you know, this could affect you. Now, Grain Farmers of Ontario is part of the Coalition for Small Business Tax Fairness we joined last year. Um, The coalition is made up of more than 70 Canadian organizations that represent business owners, professionals, and taxpayers across the country. And so obviously we are um, doing what we can to uh, raise our voice to hopefully get these uh, new changes amended. And if you have questions about how this might affect you on your farm, you should probably reach out to a, a tax advisor for more information. Up next on the podcast, we're going to talk to Hugh Simpson. He's a commercial beekeeper, and we're going to have an in-depth and quite honestly a frank conversation about uh, the beekeeping industry and the relationship between beekeepers and farmers. Today we are speaking with Hugh Simpson, the owner of Osprey Ruffs uh, Honey Company near Georgian Bay, Ontario, and he's joining us to talk a little bit more about his farm and his background in beekeeping. So can you start us off by talking a bit more about your farm? So thanks, uh, Megan and Rachel. My farm is a, um, uh, a honey uh, production farm and the uh, operation is located up in Gray County. Um, very near to Collingwood, Ontario, up the mountain from Collingwood, Ontario. Uh, We focus on honey production, and depending on the year and the time of year, uh, I run between 400 and down to perhaps 200 hives. Uh, I run the operation on my own. Uh, We do a little bit of pollination services to apple producers in the area, but primarily focus on uh, on the production of honey. And Hugh, we saw that you had a background um, outside of beekeeping. So how did you get first interested in being a beekeeper? And is this something you always wanted to do? Um, I haven't always been interested in it. I spent uh, uh, a large part of my career in a completely different environment um, in in the urban environment across Canada and the U.S. working in the financial services area, frankly, in the area of uh, uh, marketing and business development strategy. And then in 2008, uh, when things in the financial services environment changed pretty significantly, uh, I moved to my farm, uh, which I've had for a a long time, but uh, moved here permanently in 2008 and thought about... um, whether I'd go back to the city or whether I'd uh, stay at the farm permanently. And I, I did some thinking about that deeply and uh, put myself out to some of my neighbors and spent some time with them on uh, cow-calf operations and on uh, uh, lambing operations. And I uh, quickly realized that I didn't want to be in the cow-calf operations or I didn't want to be in the lambing operations business. So. Uh, one of the beekeepers had a, um, or one of the farmers had a couple of beehives on his place, and I got uh, somewhat interested in in that. And then I spent, uh, I decided to spend a, a several months with a commercial beekeeper up in this area. And after a year of uh, lending my limited talents to that commercial beekeeper, I ended up with very quickly with 100 or 150 beehives and I built a honey house and uh, anyway 10 years later I'm a commercial beekeeper in the honey production business. So Hugh what is a typical day like for you and how does that change from season to season? 
It is, um, as with farming, uh, the day depends on the uh, time of year and the weather. So in the, um, in the springtime, essentially what I'm doing is I'm going out to yards where I keep hives and I keep hives on um, up to about 20 different farms. So I'm visiting each one of those farm, farm yards uh, to see how the bees have done over winter. And that's kind of a inventory uh, feeding, unwrapping bees from the, uh, from the winter time. And then as, as the weather improves and we get a little bit more warmth, uh, you know, and I've, I've kind of culled the hives that didn't make it through the winter time, I then kind of moved to the focus of, uh, of uh, you know, bringing the hives that perhaps are a little bit weak up to health. Um, the, the vision is that during the year that you want to get your uh, bees up to a state where you've got all the dead ones out of the bee yard, so you're not dealing with those, you know, during the, during the full bee season. And that the ones that you've got in the yard are strong enough to be foraging once the nectar flows start. So, um, you know, you start to move as, you know, as April and May start to come on, you start to move from, you know, feeding and unwrapping and so with the early spring stuff to getting hives up to a level where you can actually split them, uh, where one hive that is strong enough, you can uh, move that uh, brood those brood frames around to allow you to get one or maybe two for, uh, hives out of that one hive. So that's where we are at the moment. Uh, I'm, you know, split my hives and, um, and the uh, queens, queen cells are in the hives ready to be hatched and shortly they'll be flying and mating. And then once those hives get to a place where uh, the the split hives have a mated queen inside. Uh, then you can start moving hives around to honey yards. So you're you're always sort of it's almost like a milk run. You know, you start on on a Monday morning, and depending on the time of year, uh, you're doing certain kinds of things in each one of those bee yards, and you just keep you know going every day until at the end of you know the final of seven days of that week you start over again on Monday and you start doing something different based on the weather and right now we're as I say we're uh, we're just coming out of that time where we're splitting hives and then we'll move hives into honey yards and then if we've got good weather we'll start putting boxes on where the bees can start to build some honey for us and then of course you move to harvest and uh, harvesting is <clears throat> going to those yards and taking the honey off and bringing it back to the uh the main home farm here extracting honey and then we barrel it and uh, that's a process and then over the winter time essentially we're uh you know we're marketing and delivering honey and repairing equipment and if it's warm enough we may be we may be feeding some bees as well Sounds like you've been really busy with uh, your various bee yards. Um, so I was curious, we've heard a lot of news that the bees had a hard time this winter and, and their overwintering was a little tough on them. So what have you found on your farm uh, and how did your bees do this winter compared to what we've been hearing about in the news? I mean, every beekeeping operation is unique for different reasons, uh, protocols, um, you know, microclimates in the area that, you know, someone's keeping bees. But you're right, there has been uh, uh, fairly consistent reporting that the bees didn't do as well this past spring as they have in, in other years, or at least that there are reports of high losses. I also had high losses uh, this year. And I can attribute that to the, um, it's not really about the winter time, although I, I guess you might say the, the winter time is, is the most commonly used marker. It's, you know, called winter mortalities and so on. But it's really attributed to last summer. Uh, last summer was a, a, just a poor year for beekeeping. It was, uh, as you'll recall, the summer of 2017, it got a late start. Uh, it was dark, it was wet, it was cold. 
for a long time. And essentially, <clears throat> when I think about the last 18 months for bees, um, when I put the bees into the winter time of, say, no November, October, November of 2016, and then they had that uh, poor summer of 2017, and then, of course, I put them back into winter in the, say, October, November of 2017. In the last 18 months, really, there's really only been about two months of decent weather for bees, maybe three months, depending on your microclimate. But three months out of 18 months for bees to uh, fly and forage and deal with the things that they need to uh, you know, proper mating of queens, etc. It, it's a, it's really a, a catalyst for uh, poor outcomes. So when people talk about, you know, it, it was a, a hard winter. Really, um, I attribute it to a poor summer. If we have a strong uh, bee season, and the beekeeper uses the right kinds of protocols, that is, you know, using the right kinds of treatments for pests and disease and leaves enough feed in the hive. And, and there's lots of good healthy bees from that summer going into the winter time. Uh, bees will survive, a, in quotes, a hard winter. Um, a, a cold winter is unlikely to be the, the catalyst for uh, poor uh, survival. It's it's in all likelihood what you did the season before or what you experienced the season before. So I attribute the results from this spring to the uh, the really lousy uh, bee season we had the, the year before. Hugh, you mentioned having to feed the bees. Can we talk a bit about food and nutrition? Um, you said that your bees are used to pollinate some apple orchards, and I've heard that they're also used to pollinate blueberry fields, but that blueberries don't give them all the nutrition that they need. So what exactly does a bee need to stay healthy when it comes to food and nutrition? Okay, so the uh, feeding in general um, is to ensure that there's enough uh, carbohydrate feed inside the hive uh, so they can you know, generate the energy to generate the warmth uh, over the winter time, that's fall feeding. In the spring, you're, you know, you're feeding during a, uh, a forage dearth. There just isn't enough nectar out there, and they've probably gone through much of their stores from the winter time. So you're feeding a carbohydrates, uh, which is a sugar syrup uh, mixture, and likely a protein uh, complement, which is a uh, which is where they would normally get that from a pollen. You're feeding that in dearth times. So those are those are feeds. That's winter or late fall and and early spring. Those are feeds where it's just kind of as they say dearth feeding, where they don't have anything else. So you're getting them through to what they they need for the for the time until there's some more uh, natural forage available. That's general feeding, um, but uh, nutrition for bees is. Um, really more than just feeding sugar syrup and, and a supplement pollen. Uh, they need to have access uh, to a natural um, uh, feed source. So, so when, when I place hives into bee yards, I'm kind of looking around for a, uh, an environment or a habitat that has a diversity of, of flora. Bees need three things. They need carbohydrates, they need proteins, and they need clean water. Uh, if you can put a bee yard close to or inside a swamp where you've got terrific access, that's actually a nice spot, so long as there's enough sunlight getting in there. That's a nice spot for bees. Uh, where the pollination uh, piece comes into uh, the question on feed is not necessarily, you know, whether the uh, whether the the flower on the plant being pollinating uh, being pollinated is a you know has has uh, decent attributes. It's a matter of whether or not uh, the bees have got access to a 
enough of it and a diversity. So if bees are on blueberries, as an example, uh, you, you know, the, the bee is only going to get um, the pollen and the, and the nectars from a blueberry flower. That's okay, um, but uh, just like we can't do well on a, uh, you know, on a simple diet of one kind of thing, the bees need access to a diversity of forage. So the longer that they're in a pollination where they've only got access to a monoflora, the more stress uh, nutritionally that can be. So if they move from you know, blueberries to uh, cranberries, what they're missing is you know, dandelions and star thistle and uh, goldenrod and other you know, Joe pie weed, and they're missing all of those other things that might be on a, on a more interesting plate. Um, so, so pollination has its um, stress factors that relate to uh, nutrition. There are other stress factors uh, related to pollination as well, but, but as it relates to feeding, that's a, uh, that's a consideration when you're taking your bees into pollination services. So we follow you on Twitter, Hugh, and uh, I love to follow along and see all the different photos you're tweeting out and information on bees. Um, and I see that a lot of your bee yards and those hives are in different locations. Um, and I've seen that some of them are near fields and different grain farms. So I know that you take into account what's around there for the bees for food, but are these um, hives located in all different places? Uh, and where exactly do you have them placed? The, the yards are, uh, there are you know, there's a more than one or two really important factors in terms of putting the bee yard, uh, placing a bee yard. I mean, generally speaking, you want a yard that has, uh, you know, a, a spot where it, there's good access or good exposure to sun for most of the day. Um, some uh, wind or cold wind shield, winter shield from the north or the northwest that you know that the the wind is not blowing into the into the hives. Uh, you want to have access. I mean, I I uh, run a a three ton crane truck, which needs to get in and out of a out of a yard, so it can't be you know too uh, difficult for a truck of that size to be able to get in and out. A beekeeper likes to work on level ground. In terms of uh, in terms of the um, the, the habitat. You know, I look for a diversity of planting. So all of my yards, um, I, I mean, when I say all, I would say, uh, you know, 90 plus percent of my yards have access to um, grain farms for sure. I mean, most of the farm, most of the landscape here includes, you know, grain farms from within certainly five, you know, three to five kilometers of any bee yard. And so a bee can fly to a grain farm easily if that's where they want to fly. But what I'm looking for is, is uh, frankly, you know, not, not corn and beans and wheat. I'm looking for, uh, uh, as they say, a, a diversity of flora. So I'm looking for a, a habitat which includes uh, a natural landscape where there's flowers going to be blooming, um, whether they're in swamps or on roadsides or in fallow fields or in marginal lands, that kind of thing. That, that's a really important component for uh, placing a yard. But, but all of them, you know, I have, you know, most, most of my uh, partners who are the landowners where I keep the bees uh, part of their business for sure is go is going to be grain farming. I mean, they're not they none of these guys are making a living uh, on the land that I find most valuable for the bees. So, Hugh, it sounds like you have good relations with grain farmers in your area. That's nice to hear because in recent years we've heard a lot about negative interactions between farmers and beekeepers, in particular around the use of neonicotinoids. 
I understand that you resigned from the Ontario Beekeepers Association because you disagreed with their stance on banning the use of neonics. Can you touch on that a little bit for us and perhaps how you now see the relationship between grain farmers and beekeepers and how grain farmers are managing their crops and the use of neonics? So I think the, um, for the most part, beekeepers, uh, commercial beekeepers and commercial farmers, you know, people who make their living doing these things, I think ironically, notwithstanding what we uh, see in headlines and what, what influences, you know, policy and media, ironically, I think the relationship is actually quite good. So, and what I mean by that is that, um, so I, I have a, a pretty broad network of uh, grain farmer relationships and, um, and I keep in touch with commercial beekeepers that for Ontario run pretty significant percentage of the honey production or pollination numbers for Ontario. When we talk about our respective, uh, you know, relationships with the people who own the land uh, where we keep the bees, it's good. I think what's happened in the uh, past little while, and it's my sense that it may have settled down a little bit, but certainly since 2012, there has been some attention paid to a, a smaller group. And sometimes we know that a, a squeaky wheel is the one that gets the attention. You know, whether it deserves or needs the attention, it's the one that kind of keeps you up at night. And so my experience uh, is that the relationships are good. Um, but as soon as it starts to get to a place where you've got an organization that is, you know, has an agenda that maybe goes beyond just a one-to-one commercial relationship, there may be some, there may be some, uh, uh, you know, philosophical agenda, there may be a political agenda. And when I mean political agenda, organizations sometimes are, are serving a, a group that, frankly, where they feel they're representing their constituents, but, you know, whether those constituents agree with the organization's philosophy or approach is a question mark. So to be very, to be very specific uh, and, and candid in, in this uh, conversation about bees and, and, and beekeepers and grain farming and grain farmers, it's my sense that uh, two organizations s- sort of started to throw stones at each other uh, on something because they felt that that was the best way to manage their membership and to manage their image with politicians and media when I feel fairly strongly that if you went below the organizational level and talked to individual farmers, and I'm not saying all, but I'm saying most, and individual commercial beekeepers, frankly, the, the working relationship was pretty good and is pretty good and remains pretty good. I, I, wouldn't, have far, I wouldn't have bees on 20 farms and the the 10 or 20 beekeepers, commercial beekeepers that I know that probably represent certainly, you know, 15 to 25% of the honey production in Ontario, you know, they wouldn't have bees on this, on the grain farms that they do today if the relationships were bad. Um, But um, as I say, the, the organizations that represent these constituents have a requirement to, uh, you know, to put forward, as they say, uh, an agenda that they feel is um, that they feel is the right agenda for for their uh, for their constituents. But my sense is that uh, the uh, politics and media 
and uh, and and certain groups within the public domain get a hold of these things and they run uh, they run in directions that that uh, really lead to some unintended consequences and so I think that's kind of what happened in 2012 and I think it's as I say I think it's calmed down uh, a little bit for a bunch of different reasons but I think the primary reason is that um, it underneath all of that hyperbole uh, the the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, commercial farmers and commercial beekeepers really do get along uh, pretty well and have a pretty good understanding of one another's um, uh, economics and, and opportunities. Do you think that the best management practices that were developed, such as the use of deflectors on planters and the fluency agent with the treated seeds, and also the Bee Connected app developed by CropLife, uh, which promotes communication, do you see those as positive outcomes from the discourse that happened in 2012? No, I think those are I think those are positive things. I mean, I I think that a um, a an outcome uh, where the awareness is higher is a good outcome. Um, my my feeling is that um, uh, that the, the the path to get to that good outcome is questionable uh, has been questionable. There's been a, a great deal of, um, I think, discourse that was, uh, you know, one might, some might say, well, it was necessary to get us to this good outcome, and of course, I, I have a disagreement about that, and, uh, but I, I think the, you know, I think changes in technology, whether it's the way the seed is coated, uh, or you know, the way it's, as it regards the deflectors and other hardware technologies, you know, to, to make it uh, more safe uh, for the environment, uh, bees, uh, you know, those using the product, the farm uh, people that are working with the product, all those things are good outcomes. Um, you know, my, my observation is, you know, what was the best way to, to get to that outcome? Do you, do you, um, do you create an environment which, uh, feels a bit um, difficult or maybe very difficult and adversarial in order to negotiate your way to those good outcomes or are there are there you know there are there more kind of agreeable ways to that and I guess that's debatable Um, you know that's a negotiation that is situational with every negotiation but certainly the the way we got to those positive outcomes was um, I think difficult and and uh, and disagreeable for a lot of people in terms of, you know, managing relationships. So this year, Hugh, I think we've been hearing a lot more about the Varroa mite. Um, Some different organizations have been talking about that a little bit more, and we've been hearing a few more news pieces about the the Varroa mite. So have you found it's impacting your own bees on the farm? And do you think this is more of a significant issue this year for bees across the province? Or has this been an ongoing issue? Varroa mite is the uh, most difficult and virulent um, pest for a risk stressor for uh, uh, beehives. And so as if, if your bees are doing well, uh, it, it is there's a very strong likelihood that your mites are doing well. If you're not, if you're not managing the Varroa mite, population or managing the varroa mite risk in your operation, then in all likelihood, you're going to succumb to the, uh, the varroa mite. And uh, the, the varroa mite on its own is a problem, but the, the, uh, the disease and virus that is a result of the varroa mite, there are things that that the hive will succumb to because it's overrun with varroa uh, that goes beyond just varroa. So it's a big deal. Uh, and for a while uh, it got, um, it got relegated to a, you know, a secondary risk or maybe even not a risk 
uh, when people were keen to make the point that the highest risk was the use of pesticides or the exposure to pesticides, uh, what got left off out of the conversation was, but what about Varroa? And uh, so that was an area where I had a pretty strong disagreement, uh, you know, because it took our eye off the ball as it regards the number one issue <clears throat> being Varroa mite. And for those who are, were new to beekeeping and certainly in the last six or seven or eight years, there's a lot of new, uh, there's a lot of people who have become interested in for different kinds of reasons. Not all of them are commercial reasons in beekeeping. And, you know, they don't have the benefit of a mentor or, or they, they may not be, uh, you know, it's fairly inexpensive to get into it. And so for if you only have three or four hives, you know, you may not be seriously managing the protocols. And so in, to some degree, some of the new beekeepers may have been getting uh, some of this, some of these messages that if your hives fail, it, it, in all likelihood, it's a pesticide. And um, that, that kept them from doing things about Varroa, which is really, really important to do. Do you have effective treatments for Varroa mite? Uh, there are effective uh, treatments for Varroa mite, but it's, um, I mean, I don't know how effective, I should be careful about saying that. There, there are a number of synthetics uh, that we can use inside the hive. And the problem is, as your listeners would understand with some of these, is that resistance uh, over time becomes uh, a problem. And uh, at the moment, you know, we've got sort of two or three uh, synthetics that we can use. And over the years, I think the, those synthetics have become you know, less and less effective. Um, so more is, you know, more is better. Uh, there are a few, um, there are a few examples of uh, uh, more organic kinds of treatments that uh, where there isn't resistance. Um, and uh, those are some acids that you can use inside a hive. The, the the trick with those acids is that um, they can also do a lot, cause a lot of grief inside a hive. The synthetics have been formulated in such a way that they don't do much or if any damage at all to the bees or the queen inside the hive. And the, the acids that are effective um, and where there's no resistance have to be used really, really carefully. Otherwise, you can, uh, you can damage your queen or kill, kill too many bees. Mm -hmm. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a battle. Uh, it really is a battle. I'm going to change gears a little bit uh, right now, Hugh, and talk more about the public outreach side of things. And this is something we're really focusing on agriculture. That's, uh, I guess, not a new thing, but we've seen recently uh, that you were involved in Before the Plate. So can you tell us a bit more about the importance that you feel in being involved in public outreach uh, initiatives like that in agriculture? Sure. Um, so I got in touch, uh, I heard about before the plate a couple of years ago and, uh, because of my involvement, um, on the, if you like, on the B file, um, I, I really got the sense that, uh, any opportunity that we in agriculture have to, um, present an image uh, which is, uh, you know, genuine, real, authentic, and, and positive, that, um, you know, we should be exploring it. And, and one, of, one of my concerns, and given my uh, background, which I, which I explained to you earlier, uh, you know, for a, a large part of my career was more sort of corporate marketing strategy, yeah. uh, was a concern that too much of our message in agriculture uh, was relying upon an individual farmer to tell his or her story. Mm 
And, and that's a good component to the message strategy. But I, I feel strongly that, um, that uh, you know, that'll get you to where you want to be, you know, one or two people at a time. But a strategy that includes some more uh, emotive messaging to a broader audience uh, can be really helpful. And when I heard about uh, Before the Plate, I, I called Dylan and said, Let's, let, let me bend your ear a little bit about my philosophy on this and see where it lands with what you're thinking about doing. This is before they had any cameras or a director or sound people or anything. Yeah. And, he's, and, and, and Dylan was uh, of the same mind with the idea that, you know, telling a modern uh, farm family story, which is a successful story, uh, to an audience of primarily, uh, you know, non-farm and perhaps let's just say urban uh, uh, stakeholders, and, and through the eyes, you know, through the lens of a younger, uh, also non-farm, notwithstanding that these guys, some of them are agriculture college guys, uh, but really they, these are non-farm guys making this movie and trying to do it in a way which <clears throat> presents a, uh, a, a clear message about what happens on a modern successful farm today and, <clears throat> and then to present that to a, an urban audience. I said, anything I can do, uh, you know, I would like to help you. So I, I did stay in touch and, and provided whatever advice uh, he thought was uh, helpful. And maybe I provided some advice from time to time that he thought wasn't helpful. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he said, look, we'd like to do a segment on, uh, on your farm and, and get to hear your uh, comments on, on this subject too. So we, uh, they, I was happy to have their crew come up here and we did some, fun filming for a day and and I've stayed in touch with them to uh to be helpful where I can and to uh you know provide some constructive criticism where they'll allow it and uh whether or not you know they achieve I think which is a a terrific objective for uh you know getting this film introduced to the uh, Toronto International Film Festival which I think would be a terrific audience to see the the results um if they do that, that's great. And if they don't, I think it's a, a really good, I think, I think it's a winner anyway. And I think it will help to tell the story to a broader audience in a way which deals a little bit more with the uh, emotional side of, you know, people's, uh, how people form their opinions. And I, I, my, my feeling is that we need to do more of that. So, Hugh, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you've probably got a really busy day ahead of you from the sounds of things. So if people listening want to get to know you a little bit better, where can they do that? Uh, I know I follow you on Instagram and you have some fantastic photos on there of your operation and your bee dog. Um, so if anyone wants to follow you on Instagram and Twitter, where can they find you? Osprey Beekeeper. If you go to Twitter, if you go to uh, Instagram and, and look for Osprey Beekeeper, um, and what I try to do there, I use those two medias differently. Yeah. Uh, I, I have two audiences, really. Uh, one is I, I have a fairly interested audience who are looking to me to make some comments or maybe distribute some information about more specifically about bees and honey and beekeeping. Uh, that's the Twitter feed, essentially, and and most of my followers there are are people who are related somehow to the farm farming community, and that's Osprey Beekeeper. Uh, and then Instagram is is more for my audience, which buys the honey. I mean, anybody is welcome to look at either one of them, but the the honey uh, audience are uh, food people, chefs, bakers. Um, lots of urban people who are interested in kind of the uh, the uh, the imagery that goes with living on a farm, and so there's you know there's not a lot of not there's not a lot of fact messages going there. It's mostly just 
as I said earlier, you know, trying to deliver an emotional message about what's going on in the farm, a little bit humorous. Yeah. And tw Twitter, Twitter, perhaps, although I do, I do season it a little bit with some emotional stuff. It's primarily uh, content related. Thank you so much for your time today, Hugh. We've been speaking with Hugh Simpson, the proprietor of Osprey Bluffs Honey Company. Up next, we have a conversation with Marcus Hurl, the chair of Grain Farmers of Ontario. here with Marcus Hurl, our chair at Green Farmers of Ontario, uh, and this will be a, just in, our first introduction to you, Marcus, on our podcast. You'll be on uh, once a month, so can you tell us a bit about yourself and your farm? Yes, good afternoon. Uh, yeah, my name is Marcus. I farm uh, 45 minutes east of the city of Ottawa in St. Isidore, and uh, my wife and my two sons are partners on the farm with me and uh, we grow corn, soybeans and wheat and we also have a poultry operation that uh, keeps us kind of busy during the winter time too. How long has the uh, farm been in your family? We immigrated from Germany in 1980, so it's now 30-something years that we're here in Canada and I'm the second generation on the Canadian farm. Great. And you, I guess, have a few months uh, under your belt now as chair. How's that all been going? Well, it's a learning <laughs> curve. Let's go with that. It's been a challenge to get to know all the uh, main issues that a chair needs to be aware about and uh, how to address them, and the, uh, especially on getting to know the people that we have to work with. And uh, that seems to be a timeline that everybody that gets into those roles have to get used to. What are some of the big issues that you've tackled in the first few months? Well, as uh, we're moving along in the uh, BRM uh, is one of those main issues that we're actually still working on. That's business so, risk management. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, as we're getting into the uh, FPT meeting, which is the uh, provincial federal uh, ministers meeting in Vancouver, Last year, the uh, ministers agreed for uh, coming up with a review of the BRM programs on the national front, and uh, we're still pushing hard to get that review set up and accomplished. It's on the go, but there are some timelines that were laid out, which are probably not going to be met by the time the ministers meet again. Great. And I guess uh, you just uh, were in a board meeting process right now. And I guess you were involved in that as a director. But now as a chair, there might be some different aspects of it. But I think our farmer members don't always know exactly maybe what's happening at those. So can you just tell us a bit about our, our most recent board meeting? Yes. Well, our uh, June board meeting, as every year, we do lay out, first of all, our budget that's being proposed for the coming year. Mm -hmm. Uh, which we're going to go through uh, in an actually intense fashion to make sure that all the directors around the table understand where uh, the dollars are allocated to mm. and where the revenue comes from. And uh, then also looking at projects that we're, uh, are proposed, first of all, from the research department, from the uh, market development and uh, communication and uh, all the departments within GFO do have certain allocations of dollars that we want to make sure that they're used as efficiently as possible. So at the board meeting, you would be discussing the research priorities and the approval process around that. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. As every year, we, uh, that we do look at the uh, research proposals that do come in. Uh, proposed, first of all, from the uh, research committee that's uh, being put in place to uh, look at the proposals that were called for to, uh, from industry and uh, from farmers that want to put in proposals that um, we allocate then dollars towards those, uh, those fundings that, uh, that they require. And as we look at some of the CAP program initiatives that are being rolled out this year from the federal and provincial front, there seems to be some challenges of how we can access some of those dollars because of the structure that the way they have changed to source the dollars towards those projects. One of the things that we like to make sure our research does is actually have practical on-farm applications. And 
a lot of that has to deal with addressing some of the challenges that farmers face. And this has definitely been a challenging year for, for farmers. How was planting in your area in eastern Ontario? Well, as every year, I have to say, planting is the first stress that every farmer faces in uh, of the, the cropping year. And uh, as we look back now, uh, it's been actually a nice spring and uh, everything went in in timely fashion. It was a little bit later than normal, probably a week, week and a half later. But when we think back in March, everybody was afraid that we might not even get into the fields by uh, may 15th or anything like that because of the uh, the cold weather the snow that we had late spring and all that so as crops are now emerging and growing are they're actually doing quite well with the heat and moisture that we received in the last few weeks i would say that we're all satisfied i know some of the farmers in other parts of the province haven't been as lucky they've had a few more challenges what have you heard from your fellow directors on the board about how things are going in their different districts yeah you're you're right on that front uh, the um, the challenges are certainly something we have to keep in mind because ontario is a large province and uh, weather patterns can can play actually a large impact on cropping uh, putting a crop in the ground and how it uh, how the planting gets done in a timely fashion so in south i think essex county they certainly are still working at it uh, i think hamilton area and stuff like that were along the great lakes which they had more precipitation as than the rest of the province had and I just want to say thank you, Marcus, for chatting with us today and letting our farmer members get to know a bit more about you. Um, and we will be having Marcus on our podcast once a month. And if you have any questions for Marcus that you'd like us to have him answer on the podcast, feel free to send us an email, graintalk at gfo.ca. Thank you for listening to our Grain Talk podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market reports, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests, Hugh Simpson and Marcus Hurl, and a thank you to our producer, Mark Carter. And if you have enjoyed what you've heard today, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play.